1: Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Elisa Solomon, who teaches at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, where she directs the arts and culture concentration of the MA program. She's here to talk about her new book, One... Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Elisa Solomon, who teaches at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, where she directs the arts and culture concentration of the MA program. She's here to talk about her new book, Wonder of Wonders, A Cultural History of Fiddler on the Roof, published in 2013 by Metropolitan. Elisa, thanks very much for joining us on the program.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, first question. Uh, how did you come to write this book?
0: So that's a long story, <laughs> yeah. um, but I'll I'll try to give the short version. Um, I was, until 2004, for about 20 years, a reporter and critic at the Village Voice here in New York City. And in 2004, uh, Revival of Fiddler was announced for Broadway. And I hadn't thought about the show since I'd been an adolescent, which was um, some decades before. <laughs> and I had kind of a, I don't know, cynical reaction to the announcement that it was going to be done again, and I went to my editor and I said, how about I do a preview piece about why do we need this show, like, what is the point of seeing these, you know, sweet little Jews on Broadway again, now that we are so many generations uh, beyond that sentimental version of that story, and we're powerful, and... Uh, everything else, um, I think I'd like to look into that question. He said, "Sure, go ahead." So the first thing I had to do was re-familiarize myself with the the show in specific ways. And on the way home, I I stopped and bought a CD um, when you could still do that <laughs> of, of the musical. And when I brought it home and put it on, first two bars, I started to cry, and I like cried all the way through listening to the album. And I thought, well, I guess cynicism isn't really the best way to approach this material. (laughs) And I really had to ask, like, what is it that's so moving and powerful about this show that I was so ready to dismiss? And I did a little bit of research for a short, quick, you know, journalistic piece here at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts that has an amazing archive. Um, And it just whetted my appetite. I thought – There is so much more going on here. I really need to look into it.
1: That's great. All right, so we'll get stuck into the the book. Your first chapter is titled Tevye's Long Journey to the New York Stage. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about this journey and um, some of those early adaptations, and particularly about uh, Shalom Aleichem, um, who was, of course, the the creator of Tevye.
0: Sure. So when I started working on... on the book and thought about all of the different directions that a story about fiddler on the roof, um, could go in it pretty, pretty early on. I knew that it would have a kind of triptych structure that in the center of the book, I needed to tell the story of the making of the show and why it caught on with American and indeed worldwide audiences, uh, so quickly, but that it also had an afterlife that went far beyond, you know, half a century now, the opening in 1964. And, of course, it also had a prior life, which was the original source material, which are the stories, the Tevya stories by Sholem Aleichem, um, written serially over about a 20-year period from 1894 to about 1915, um, and written sometimes uh, some years apart, the nine different stories about Tevya three or four of which form the basis of Fiddler. So I knew I needed to start there. And uh, it also goes a little bit to why did I, uh, to your first question about um, why did I write this book. In the 90s, I had been studying, like I, <laughs> I broke my brain learning Yiddish. Um, and at that point, I had encountered Sholem Aleichem in a sophisticated way for the first time. Like a lot of people, I had erroneously thought of him as a cutesy, humorist, uh, mostly of interest to children, um, when in fact he was really one of the great voices of modern literature. Uh, of course, a creator of the entire genre of modern Yiddish literature, but of, of of a a great author of worldwide modern literature. And the Tevye stories are just extraordinary examples of an intricate, sophisticated, complicated, ironic form in which Tevya, through monologues, tells the story of his life, uh, largely by telling about his daughters, to the unseen author, Shaw Echem, whom Tevya is addressing. And because of this structure, we're able to see both the action of the events in Tevya's lives and the ways in which he understands them, or more important, I would say, how he fails to understand them. And of course they're hilarious at the same time as they're uh, poignant and tragic. So the first chapter tells about the evolution of these stories and a story about Shalom Aleichem himself, who desperately wanted to make a killing in the Yiddish theater of New York city at the turn of the last century. And, he was a big flop in the theater. And that, that was a, a surprise that I found in my research, and it was such a great, juicy story to be able to tell. And he he had a couple of plays open here in, uh, here in New York uh, around 1905 and um, – no, sorry, 1907. And uh, they were just such a disaster that he left New York and went back to Europe. But while he was there, he adapted – the Tevye stories for the stage, and that was the first version of Tevye the Milkman for the theater, and it never got done in his lifetime. But it got done some years later by Maurice Schwartz at the Yiddish Art Theater, and that was really sort of demonstrating the great stageworthiness of of Tevye, especially for a great actor, um, a real a role that somebody could really sink his teeth into and demonstrate his his humor. His emotional depth, his uh, tragic acting—you know—all of that. It's a—it's a role that really calls for a great star.
1: Okay, so you—you you go on to look at um, some of the uh, post-war works, which you suggest performed the crucial cultural task of creating the East European. Jewish past for non-Yiddish-speaking Americans mm-hmm. and establishing the ground which Fiddler eventually stood on. Can you can you tell us a bit about those works?
0: Sure. So Sholem <clears throat> was translated into English a little, um, you know, in the first uh, 40 years, 50 years of the 20th century in the U.S., but there was a kind of boom in the publication and availability of Alechem and other material related to Yiddishkeit after the Second World War, which stands to reason um, there was an, an interest in the culture that was now gone forever. Um, and, and this already is a complicated idea because after World War I, Yiddish speakers had the sense that that culture was gone forever. You know, I think it's hard for us from the vantage point of post-World War II to remember how cataclysmic World War I seemed as, you know, the Stetlach were, you know, trampled over, you know, often near the front lines. And, and meanwhile, industrialization also had been sort of emptying out the Stetlach as people were moving to urban environments. And so there was a kind of um, nostalgia, a complicated nostalgia, produced about that shtetl life, Eastern European Jewish life in the small market towns, um, that first showed itself in Yiddish, in, in Yiddish work, and I'd say even in the reception of Maurice Schwartz's Sholm Aleichem plays, and even in the outpouring of support for Sholm Aleichem himself at his funeral, which had 100,000 people um, in a in a procession. Through New York City, um, there there was a kind of I think public mourning. He 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 came to exemplify Sholmo Echem did the 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 very life and culture of Eastern European Jews. So uh, a generation later, um, two generations later, after Second World War, when his work got translated into English, it performed that same kind of function. For a, a larger audience, in, including, of course, non Yiddish speakers, which is to say also non Jews. And this uh, went along with the publication of books like Life is with People, which was a sort of ethnography of the shtetl, but a very flawed one based pretty much on interviews with people who had long emigrated um, books by Maurice Samuel, like the world of Sholem Aleichem*, which was a kind of uh, strange amalgam of plot summaries that Samuel wrote of Sholem Aleichem's work, his literary analysis, his um, call to arms for the continuation of Jewish life and culture. He was writing it uh, right in the middle of the Holocaust. Um, and these these kind and there was a there were some exhibits that moved around the U.S. of the work of Marc Chagall. You know, all of these were working together to create a certain idyllic idea of the shtetl, You know, kind of kind of like the the um, you know Arcadia of uh, a, a British or um, you know European ideal. Um, we had now this origin story of the shtetl as this idyllic place of warmth and um, community and meaningful traditions and practices with the a description that often went something like the shtetl was, you know, material, poor in a material way, but rich in spirit and this this was an idea that very much influenced the creators of Fiddler on the Roof because when they went to work on the show and to do research about the background, the very books that they found and relied on were books like Life is with People.
1: That's great. Yeah, so tell us a bit about Tevya's journey to Broadway and and about the, that creative team that, that put together what would eventually become Fiddler on the Roof.
0: Okay. Um, Let me detour for one second, though, Max, and and talk about the first hit uh, in English of Shomalicham on the stage, which was not a musical. It was a collaboration in the 1950s among a number of blacklisted theater artists. Um, Well, I mean, they weren't blacklisted from the theater. They were blacklisted from radio and film, and they got together to make theater because the theater – you know bless its heart was a place that was not practicing the blacklist not not observing it and so uh, a writer named arnold pearl who had been blacklisted from radio work um, um, got together with um howard de silva an actor who had a thriving hollywood career until he was um Declared a communist and could not get work anymore, and they created a a theater company. And the first show that they did in 1953 was was called um, The World of Sholem Aleichem, and it was sort of three one acts based on on stories by Sholem Aleichem, Yudlamed Peretz, and um, a helm story. And it was a surprise hit; people just went crazy for it. And they had done it in a in a, in a hotel um, space, they didn't even have a traditional theater for it. And it did so well that they, uh, when their their lease for the space um, ran out, the space wasn't available for a few months. They then brought it back when the space became available again. And this launched an interest uh, a a greater interest in this work and then Pearl and Da Silva a few years later did an adaptation of the Tevye stories called Tevye and his daughters it was not as successful but what it did do was demonstrate that that this material could find an audience in English so when the creators of Fiddler the Uh, The librettist, Joe Stein, and the uh, music and lyrics team, Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnick, began looking for a new project to do together in the early 60s after they'd they'd worked together and been quite successful. They thought about a Sholem Aleichem adaptation. Uh, Sholem Aleichem's novel, Wandering Stars, a terrific novel, a a sprawling, crazy novel about Yiddish theater troops um, traipsing, across the world. Um, they had the idea that they might adapt that into a musical, but they found that it was in fact too sprawling, they thought, for the stage, though it turns out Maurice Schwartz had done an adaptation uh, some 50 years earlier. In any case, um, but they, they loved Show Aleichem, and they decided to look at other, other works of his, and they picked up the Tevye stories, and like anybody who picks up the Tevye stories, they absolutely fell in love with them and started working on them. And then they had to start shopping them around uh, to producers, and they couldn't find any interested producers. Producers were worried that, as many of them put it, the material would be too Jewish. Uh, According to Sheldon Harnick, one of them said, um, well, this is all, you know, very fine and sweet and everything, but what are we going to do for ticket sales when we run out of Hadassah groups? So they, they couldn't get the backing. They went to Hal Prince, who at the time was a sort of wunderkind uh, producer, very young and um, rising star of Broadway. And he said to them, well, you know, I can't identify with this material. You know, he was a Yeka from a German Jewish background, but why didn't they get the director, Jerry Robbins to work with them? he would know how to lift the material into a, a kind of more metaphorical um, level and keep it from being too cutesy. And if they could get Robbins, then he, Hal Prince, would be happy to sign on as the producer. So it took a while, but that's in fact what happened. And in 1963, Bach, Harnick, Stein, and Robbins began work in earnest on what at the time was called Tevye, um, but eventually became the Fiddler on the Roof that we all know and mostly love.
1: Great. tell us a bit more about the the development of of Fiddler? Um, What was the casting process like, and and what were some of the issues that came up um, in the writing and and staging of of Fiddler?
0: Okay. Okay. So first, let me say a little bit about Jerry Robbins first, because um, he was... Probably the m- most astonishing um, character that I spent time learning about when I was doing my research. he He kept voluminous archives, and they're they're all here at the public library in New York, which is such a lucky thing. and um and what i what I learned was that he had been, as a young man, extremely what's the word, unhappy about being Jewish. His, his parents were immigrants. He grew up in, in New Jersey, and he was ashamed of their accents. He felt that Jewish men were wimpy, and um, he had had a, a terrible experience with a bar mitzvah tutor who kind of sat by when boys were teasing him. Um, and he just tried to do everything he could to run away from his Jewish heritage, as he said himself in his autobiographical notes. He he worked on an autobiographical theater piece that was never completed, but all of the notes are there in his archive. And he even said things like he, he um, one of the reasons he was drawn to study ballet and, and become a dancer and, and choreographer in that tradition was that it was so, un Jewish <laughs> you know it was it was like the height of of court respectability and that his very you know posture and bearing were changed from what he considered a kind of uh, lumpy slobby boorish wimpy Jewish masculinity and so part of the part of the work of, of Fiddler was Jerry Robbins uh, reclaiming his heritage through the process by the time he was working on it, He had had some experiences that made him regret that he had run so far away from that heritage, and this was kind of an opportunity for him to embrace it again. So he he was a very exacting director. He had a reputation for being both brilliant and difficult. He could be very biting and and cruel even to cast members, particularly actors, partially because he, uh, he was a great choreographer and he worked very well with dancers, but he felt very insecure as a director of actors. And he would, he would do things over and over and over and over again, uh, driving actors kind of crazy because he wasn't sure how to do it. Then he'd yell at them. Um, he, he was a, he was a difficult director, but Everybody respected his his brilliance, his vision, his diligence, uh, his passion for this work, and not least, the star of Fiddler, um, Zero Mostel. So if you're, you know, you asked about what were some of the, the difficulties with the tension, some of the, the aspects of the casting, I think the, the, the key answer there, though there are, you know, other things to talk about, also is the, relationship between Jerry Robbins and Zero Mostel. So Mostel was a, a, a great comic actor, also a painter, who had grown up in a Yiddish-speaking family uh, in the Lower East Side of New York and then in, in um, Brownsville, Brooklyn, um, in Yiddish neighborhood. He was Joe Stein, the librettist of Fidler, had uh, heard Yiddish as a kid, kind of knew it, his parents spoke Yiddish. But Mastel was the only one associated with the show who in it as a primary creative member of the team who really knew that culture from the inside out, who really had been been steeped in it. His his um his family was uh, observant and it was a, you know, a big Shanda for the family when, when he decided to become an artist and, and worse, um, when he married a non-Jewish woman. So he prided himself in that knowledge and he kind of lorded it over Jerry Robbins, um, that, you know, he, he knew all of this stuff and Robbins didn't. Um, more important or related to that was of course that zero mustel had been blacklisted as uh, as a performer working in hollywood for alleged communist associations and on the other side the director jerry robbins had named names before the house un american activities committee um now there's a there's a there's false lore that goes around about um uh, this story that says that robbins Named Zéro Mustel specifically—that is false—but um, it is true that he named some names, and and Zéro Mustel, um, understandably, could never forgive him for that. So there was a lot of tension between the two of them, and that's that's a, a big reason for it. But also, their their differing personalities—you um, know, Mustel was just big and spilling all over the place, and. Happy to be boorish and take up space, and and um, be uh, deliberately obnoxious to try to be funny and so on. Whereas Robbins was, you know, had that very contained um, ballet kind of uh, bearing and and approach to things. So they really clashed as personalities. They clashed deeply as um, on political terms. And their their way of working was very different because Mustel would just try anything and he he had a photographic memory he could learn lines in a, in a moment and he could uh, Joe Stein said to me he could try anything in a scene and when, whatever he tried it would seem right um, because he was so great. so they they, they had a lot of um, conflicts and, and one of one of my favorite stories about that is that um, during rehearsal one day, they're playing a scene when um, Tevya walks into the house. And Jerry Robbins saw Mustel sort of, you know, touch his fingers to his lips and, and, and to the door frame of the, the set by Boris Aronson. Um, and Robin said, what are you doing? And Mustel said, well, I'm, I'm kissing the mezuzah. And Robin says, well, an audience won't understand that, so don't do it again and mustel said but of course you know this is something that tevia would do and he he wouldn't stop um you know they kept uh, Robbins um kept saying all right let's do the entrance again and don't do that and you know mustel would just kiss the mezuzah, uh, again. And, and, uh, Robbins finally, I mean, he was so furious and, and he wasn't the sort of personality who would like shout, like the more angry he got, like the quieter he got and the slower he spoke. And he just said, you know, do not do that again. So then Mastel entered the stage and crossed himself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and he, he'd made his point in the mezuzah kissing, stayed in the show and, um, you know, it's easily there when when it's uh, revived by in other productions. Now,
1: that's a great story. Um, so, tell us a bit more about how Fiddler was received in the United States, and and what the the con- the broader sort of context was for its success.
0: So, it was received ecstatically, not necessarily by all the reviewers. The The New York Times review was warm-ish but not ecstatic. But other other reviews. Um, were quite favorable but it caught on with audiences in, in a way that shocked even the, the creators of the show um, there, were, there were lines outside the box office around the block after it opened here in New York and that had already happened in the on the road tryouts first in Detroit um, and then especially in Washington D.C. where um, the, the show sold out in, in a flash and, and was um, very favorably received there so I think it I think it caught on for a number of intersecting reasons, um, not least of which is, you know, first and foremost, it's a really good show. so you know um, one can offer all kinds of cultural analyses as as I do that I think are valid, but none of them would have been meaningful if there weren't great songs and great performances and a really moving um, plot and characters who you um, root for and feel for and, and all of that. And, you know, we have Shalom Aleichem to thank for much of that. So people just responded to this tremendous material, first of all. But it also caught a number of important waves in American culture and, and, and also touched on themes that were both universal and particular at the same time. So um, so first about the, the waves in American culture, you know, first we were still in, in that era of, in, in the U.S., uh, especially for Jewish Americans, of coming to terms with the, the end of Eastern European Jewish life and culture. And this was the first really big popular work, to have represented that world for a wide audience. I mean, there certainly had been works that played to Jewish audiences, or, you know, you could buy LPs of Yiddish songs or, you know, plenty of books. But those were things that were consumed in the home, you know, or you could see exhibits at YIVO or the Jewish Museum but those were jewish spaces this was the first work of mass popular culture which i think it, it's fair to call broadway in the 60s still a kind of mass popular culture um that uh, that addressed that that slice of jewish uh of the jewish past and jewish heritage for ashkenazi jews and that was just an extraordinary thing for jewish americans to see on the stage um, many of them wrote, wrote fan letters to the creators, to Hal Prince, the producer, um, thanking them for putting across a beautiful representation of their heritage, telling, um, saying things like, they used to be ashamed, now they could be proud. I mean, really extraordinary and surprising responses. <clears throat> I think more widely, it, it caught the the wave of, concern, the, the concerns building over the, the growing civil rights movement in that period, as it makes a kind of claim for tolerance, um, the burgeoning of the women's movement. The show opened just months after the Feminine Mystique was published. And, you know, here we have the three daughters define um, the patriarchy. I mean, still within the frame of marriage, but nonetheless, um, being as Shomalekim titled the story, Modern Children. Um, the, the student movement uh, that was gaining ground in those period in that period as well is kind of represented in the Perchick character. I mean, it was it was sort of speaking to to the times in, in the in in the U.S. in in ways that people really appreciated, and especially as it was showing the sort of taking a um, and this sort of moves us into the more universal aspect. Why the show was was powerful beyond Jewish communities, beyond the United States was taking a trope that goes back, you know, at least to Aristophanes of a story about daughters uh, being forced to marry someone that their father wants them to marry instead of the person they want to. I mean, that that, you know, dramatic trope is uh, millennia old Um, and. Showing it from the father's point of view more than from the daughter's point of view, which gives it a, a certain um, uh, a, a fresh angle, a different kind of poignancy and point of entry. Um, so that's you know that's part of why that 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 familiar and important um, time honored plot is part of why the show could take off so universally. But I think also because the theme of tradition works so well for any kind of society which is to say all of them that has faced the dilemma of moving forward with the times and trying to cling to what makes a people um, who they are by virtue of their traditions and this was one of the um, strokes of genius you could call it or you could call it a you know if 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 you're a purist yiddishist um you wouldn't consider it genius you'd probably consider it a, a a kind of blasphemy um but to to make the theme tradition in a kind of generic sense um rather than torah itself right which is um you know Tevye and his family follow these rules and and um ways of life because they say, as the opening song tells us, because of tradition, um, not so much because uh, of halakha, right? Um, so that that's something that can, <clears throat> excuse me, that's something that can translate to any culture whatsoever. And as, as Joe Stein liked to tell, um, when he went to the first production in Tokyo in the uh, uh, mid-60s, he was sitting and watching a rehearsal, and one of the producers there came up to him and said, "Um, Mr. Stein, we love the show here, but, you know, I do have a question for you. Um, How is it that Americans can respond to this show so well? Why do they love it so much? Because after all, it's so Japanese. So I think that the the show um, very... Uh, brilliantly operates on two parallel tracks, a track of particularism where, you know, if you're a, a, a Jewish audience member, you recognize, um, you know, the, so many signs of your, you know, culture um, being honored. Um, the Sabbath prayer scene, the wedding scene with the chuppah and, and everything else that identifies it um, as such. This is, you know, this is our, uh, Uh, culture being lovingly uh, represented for all the world to see. Um, And at the same time, it operates on the universal track of, you know, where where if you take the wedding scene, you know, you're looking at a a scene under the chuppah. If you stop your ears, it's entirely Jewish. But if you close your eyes and just listen, the song you hear is Sunrise, Sunset, which is a waltz in um, an American idiom that's not specifically Jewish at all, that anyone can relate to. So I think that's, uh, you know, those are some of the threads to answer your question of of how and why did this catch on so well.
1: That's great. So the next section of your book, um, as you suggested, is it's titled Te- Tevye's Travels, and it, it details sort of the post-Broadway adaptations of Fiddler. So can you tell, tell us first about um, Fiddler in Israel?
0: Um, Israel was the first foreign production of Fiddler, And the authors expected that the company in in Israel, the the theater company, the actors and so on would be very attached to this material, would know all about it and um, wouldn't have to do any homework and, and so on. But of course um, they didn't know a whole lot about Israeli culture and that wasn't the case at all. The, Relationship of Israel to Eastern European Jewish cultures, I'm sure your listeners are um, well familiar, was, you know, complicated at best. The Zionist enterprise of creating a um, a new Jew, a muscle Jew, wa- depended in part on leaving aside um, that same kind of stereotype that Jerry Robbins had about Jews and particularly um, Jewish men as as wimpy and weak and um <coughs> You know, not the kind of Jewish man that Zionism um, would build. And while Shomalekim maybe was read by Israelis in Hebrew translation in school, um, there there was not a big embrace of Yiddish culture in the 1960s in Israel. The show was produced by this um, showbiz guy named Godek, who had had a big hit with My Fair Lady in um in a theater in Jaffa that he had taken over. And he was always looking for new properties, as producers call them, to to produce um, again. And he really brought the razzmatazz of the Broadway musical into Israeli culture. The man who had translated My Fair Lady for him, Don Almagor, was in the States in the 60s, and um, Godek had asked him to scout for him, and he uh, went to see Fiddler, and he was surprised. He he told me that he had a kind of typical Sabra kind of attitude going in and figured that he would not um, respond to it, that, that he would find it overly sentimental and um kind of mawkish. Um, but in fact he was profoundly moved by it and he called Godick and he said, We have we have to do this show. So um Godek did bring it there. <clears throat> the um reviews in the Israeli press were quite interesting because whether they praised the show or um hated the show, <clears throat> it was it was often in relation to um, what they said about how the show responded to Sholem Aleichem. So they either loved the show because Sholem Aleichem was so great um, in in um, providing these stories that were turned into a musical, or they hated the show because the show wasn't true enough to the great genius of Sholem Aleichem. But either way, they were kind of claiming Sholem Aleichem into um, Jewish-Israeli, Culture as part of uh, Israeli Jewish heritage in a positive way that, that hadn't really um, been done to the same degree. And, of course, this was, was after the Eichmann trial when um, when stories of the Holocaust were, you know, spoken um, in public, um, broadcast on the radio um, at large just, just a couple of years before. That really started to open Israeli um, society to, to a reckoning, with the European part of their culture.
1: The next chapter details a remarkable production of fiddler uh, in a situation of racial and political turmoil at a Brooklyn school in, in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, t- tell us about this.
0: This was really one of my favorite um, chapters to do research on. Uh, you know, maybe because I'm a, a teacher and I've identified with the story a lot. This was a, a school, a junior high school in Ocean Hill, Brownsville, neighborhood of Brooklyn um, at a time when New York City was engaged in some school districts an experiment in community control of the schools. So Ocean Hill Brownsville was one of the neighborhoods where this experiment was happening. And the experiment had to do with the frustration that um, African-American and Puerto Rican communities had had with the failure of New York City uh, fully and properly to racially integrate the public schools. They had worked for many years to undermine and undo uh, de facto segregation and we're just met with you know th- this is surprising to a lot of people. We think of that as a as, as an attribute of the South in the United States, but in fact um, the North and New York City had plenty of de facto segregation. In fact, we still do. Our our schools here are probably more segregated than they they were in the nineteen sixties. In any case, um, the, the the communities had just kept hitting um, a wall of resistance, and so they finally said well, all right, if we can't have schools together, at least let us run our own schools in our communities and um, let us hire some teachers of color, let us, you know, put black history into the curriculum, you know, all of these things that, that weren't being done yet in the 1960s. And with funding from the Ford Foundation, several school districts were identified as the place where this kind of experiment could happen. And in Ocean Hill Brownsville in Brooklyn, the superintendent who was um, appointed to be in charge of that district tried to bring in some new faculty, some African-American teachers. And to do so, he transferred out some of the weakest teachers who were in the school. Well, the teachers' union balked at that. They said he had no right to transfer those uh, teachers. I think there were about a dozen of them. And it created a big clash, and the teachers' union went out on strike for uh, most of the fall semester of that year. And this resulted in one of New York City's historically most fractious um, encounters between – Jewish New Yorkers and African-American New Yorkers because the teachers union was filled with uh, almost not entirely, but, you know, more than 90 percent white teachers and almost um, and a very high proportion of them Jewish. And the president of the teachers union was a white Jewish man, Albert Shanker. So there was this horrible clash going on in the neighborhood of Ocean Hill, Brownsville with pickets and recriminations and anti semitic anti-Semitic slurs and racist slurs being shouted back and forth. In the middle of all of that, in a junior high school um, in the neighborhood, though not in the experimental district, um, decided to do Fiddler on the Roof as their spring play. And I found, um, he's died since, sad to say, but I found the man who had directed that production, Richard Pirro, who, in fact, had written a memoir about it at the time, and I dug up a, about um, six or eight of the, the kids, you know, I mean, they were they're in their late 50s or 60 now, um, who had been in that production and, and tell the, the Rocky story of how the show almost didn't go on and then was going on and then almost didn't go on and, and finally triumphed in that climate.
1: So we're almost out of time, so we might just skip ahead to discuss the final chapter of your book, which is about how Fiddler in, in Poland mm-hmm. became part of a larger project of commemoration. Can you tell us a bit about this?
0: Sure. And this, uh, you know, I probably I probably already said that some other chapter was the most surprising to me, but I'm going to say that the Poland chapter was also really the most Amazing process of research to have found that um, Fiddler on the Roof of all things became a kind of key for unlocking the long suppressed history of Eastern European Jewry in Poland. Um, the first production in Poland wasn't until nineteen eighty three, so we're you know almost twenty years after the premiere of the show, um, and after it had played you know all over the world, including in East Germany. But Poland just was not allowing any kind of open expression of Jewish anything until really after the Solidarity Movement of the early 80s began to pry open some some history. And Fiddler became a place for people to come and be kind of strangely introduced to Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. And, and that happened in a big production at the music theater of Gdynia in 1983, where, um, you know, the, the ovations after the performance, you know, lasted like 10 minutes. Um, and in that chapter, I chronicle a more recent production in the early two thousands in a small town, um, in, in the, in Eastern, um, Poland called Dinov, uh, which had had a population that was half Jewish, um, until the eve of the Second World War, when really in two days' time, um, the Jewish population was was wiped out. And a young director and designer team that does community productions um, in Dinov, because one of them um, had grandparents from that town, um, did did a a version, their own version of Fiddler, um, that sought quite deliberately to bring the Jewish history of their town um, to life through the preparations for the show and the performance of it. So that involved interviewing um, old, you know, polls in the town about what had happened and um, what they remembered and, and so on and culminated in an outdoor performance um, involving a few professional actors and a whole bunch of local, um, amateurs, including children, for you know about like half the town that, that turned out to, to watch the show.
1: Well, that's about uh, all we have time for on the show today. So thanks very much for um, joining us, Elisa.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies with your host, Max Kaiser. We had um, Elisa Solomon, who teaches at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, talk about her new book, Wonder of Wonders, A Cultural History of Fiddler on the Roof, published in 2013 by Metropolitan.